But first now to this very big question, how will we work as this century unfolds? What's been called the pandemic's sleeper issue with a bomb dropped into that particular issue uh, via a now infamous leaked memo by Elon Musk telling his Tesla staff, anyone who wishes to do remote work must be in the office for a minimum, and I mean minimum, of 40 hours per week or depart Tesla. Well, it sparked quite the controversy. But the same sentiments have been echoed by the heads of several well-known Wall Street banks, like the Australian-born head of Morgan Stanley, James Gorman, and that of Goldman Sachs, David Solomon. Big Silicon Valley tech companies, including Meta and Alphabet, have said salaries will be reviewed for people who decide to live in locations away from their workplaces. In other words, you won't be paid New York or Silicon Valley wages if you're living in, say, Colorado. Now, all of this sits in stark contrast to Australian software company Atlassian's work from anywhere and get full pay mantra. And UK managers aren't speaking like the Americans, but anecdotally, some French business leaders are. What's going on? Well, it turns out Catalyst, uh, COVID was a catalyst for this quite crucial discussion about the future of work. Where might we all sit in, say, two years' time? Well, nobody really knows. But joining us to offer some thoughts are Sharon Parker, the John Curtin Distinguished Professor in Organisational Behaviour at the Faculty of Business and Law at Curtin University, and she's a leading researcher on the topic of work design. Also, Adam Schwab is with us. He's co-founder of LuxuryEscapes.com which occupies a ridiculous amount of my time, but there we are. <laughs> he recently penned an article for the Financial Review on the topic. Welcome to you both. Thank you so much. It's lovely to be here. Um, it, it really turns out to be this crucial discussion, doesn't it? Um, was it happening before COVID? I suppose that's one of the things I'd just like us to kick off. Um, how are we really going to live for the rest of this century, would you say, Sharon? Yeah, well, I guess before COVID, we certainly had people working remotely from home, um, but it tended to be, first of all, the minority of people. So it tended to be those sort of trusted, you know, people that, that managers were confident would work effectively from home. And it, you know, it tended to be, of course, the minority of, of people. It tended, I guess, to be thought of a little bit more of um, something for women um, rather than something for everyone. So it was certainly happening before, but but on a different sort of scale and for, I guess, a different group of, of workers. And how would you see it, Adam? Yeah, I think Sharon's right. We, we always, pre-COVID, certainly embraced flexibility, especially for, for certain uh, cohorts of employees who, who simply need it more than others. If you're if you're a single mum with three kids, it's a very different need for flexibility than a 25 year old uh, person who lives around the corner from the office. So it's always been uh, a very much a flexible workplace where needed. Uh, I think the difference is now, and since, and, and I think possibly the reason why there's so much emotion around this work from home issue is it's really an extension of the COVID argument that we've had over two years. And essentially, the Almost every, there's a, I think there's a 100% correlation between people who support lockdowns and people who want to work from home. It's, it's right. a very close, hence why it's continued in Yeah, years. but it's got longer. The legacy effect of this discussion about home is much more, I, I would argue, than the pandemic. You know, it's going to affect, and, and as I think a couple of people have written, there's no model that is really yet emerging. Therefore, it'll be very fraught. Any discussions around work are fraught because there's power relationships involved and they're likely to, to become more so, I would have thought, Adam. 
Yeah, I think I think part of the problem is people are very entrenched in that. So you, you mentioned Elon's comment. I think he's the, the probably the, the comment that got the most attention is anybody who's who's not at work will, will fire and will assume they can pretend to work elsewhere or worse that effect. Yeah. So I think there's the the Elon position. Uh, I should just caveat this. This is. The work from home phenomenon affects a pretty small cohort of workers. Well, that's, yeah, you said that uh, see, because we had the Atlassian, uh, uh, you know, Atlassian champion um, Adam Farquhar coming out and saying that Elon Musk sounded like a man out of the fifties. Yeah, I think Scott mm. Farquhar who said that Scott got his own Farquhar's issues. Right. His share price is down six percent, and he needs to get every single worker he can working on what's an incredible boring product. So Scott's talking his own book, <laughs> and so he should. Uh, but. But ultimately, if you look at what Elon said, Elon said, well, my factory workers have to work 40 hours a week. Why are these, in his words, privileged office workers allowed to work from home and not come in? And that was Elon's point. Personally, my point is a bit more nuanced. I don't I don't think 40-0 works. I don't think 0-40 works. I think there's a, probably a midpoint where we need to give our, our great team members flexibility where they need it. But the notion that people should never come into work doesn't make any sense at all. I think it's terrible for employees and terrible for teams and and terrible for businesses. Professor Parker, um, were you surprised or are you surprised at how it's suddenly, it's been rumbling along, but it's just suddenly a very hot discussion. Now, where do you see, broadly speaking, where do you see it heading? Yeah, look, I think that um, things have changed. It's not going to go back to how it was. And I think the reality is that bosses like, you know, Elon Musk will will lose good talent as a result, Uh, especially now where the labour market's pretty tight. I think in the end, Adam's right that it's probably for many workers about some sort of balance between the two extremes. So, you know, I don't think that we should throw the work from home baby out. There's a lot of benefits to it and people want it. You know, all the research suggests that 70%, 80%, 70%, 80%, depending on the study, they want more um, of, of, of this flexibility and this, you know, capacity to work at home some of the time. And they've built the skills to do it as well. Um, you know, our research, for example, suggested that people felt that they were better at managing their time and they mastered the technology and they, they were keen to work from home. So we don't want to throw that out because it does give people a bit of flexibility that's motivating for people. It allows them to you know, juggle complex lives, which we all live in at the end of the day and save a bit of time community. But we also don't want to throw the work from office baby out. And I think that's that's Adam's point too. And there is some research emerging that cultural aspects might be more affected if people are not coming into the office at all. Um, and um, there are also some individual benefits potentially as well. We just published a, a little study in um, Sloan Management Review where we measured people's experience when they were at home, but we also measured their work experience when they were in the office. And we found that actually people were less lonely when they had really good support from their colleagues in the office. So, you know, colleagues for uh, support when they were at, at home, yeah, nice, but it was really that colleague support when you're actually in work in the office, that more informal chat that was very protective against a sense of loneliness. So I think in the end we're going to um, um, land somewhere in between with these more hybrid models and then it's really just a matter of figuring out how to work those models because there's some complexity there that we're not used to handling uh, as organisations. Gee, but I mean, not that's throw that... those babies out, no, <laughs> I think is but... my argument. But that is like that is a very big brew that you're you're sketching there, Sharon. For every mm-hmm. uh, to be, um, you know, 
to be debating when you've got money at stake, your salary, and you've got different power relationships. I mean, that, that is, you know, that's really huge. I might add, not, neither of you have mentioned unions. I haven't heard unions talk about this much. Is that because unions essentially, Adam, uh, do front-facing people, a, a lot of them? You know, they're, they're less involved in the, um, in the office working. A lot of these would be contractors and not unionised? Oh, not so much. I think you're right. It's I said that almost no one who works from home is a member of a union uh, because you're earning. Funny, I, I, I put, uh, after my article during the week, I don't think I've ever had. I've written two thousand articles in almost twenty years. I've never had reaction like this, both positive and negative. And and the negative comments were all from very limited cohorts of people. It's it's sort of the forty plus people who have worked from home for many years and probably earning two hundred fifty thousand dollars plus a year. So don't want their sort of apple cart upset. Understandably, uh, there's some sort of older workers and there's some sort of really younger workers, but the majority were, were sort of older and wealthier. And this just continues the, the – if you look at the pandemic, and I wrote this in April 2020, every policy we've put in place in the pandemic has been exacerbating the shift of wealth from young to old, and young didn't have much to start off with. Everything, everything from from JobKeeper, which which went to billionaires like Solly and, and Jerry Harvey, to – to property uh, taxes, which which benefit the rich, to everything benefit the rich, and everything took away from the poor and, and the young and the poor from housing commission. Like I can go, I can spend hours talking about this. But this is another one. So if you're working from home, if you're 45 years old and a manager and working from home, it's great. You're, you're, you've reached your probably maximum level of, of learning. You've probably reached your maximum level of earning. But if you're a 21 year old needing to learn, needing to progress, needing to get promotions, it's a disaster. You, you're not in front of your boss. You're not you're not with your friends. You're not getting promoted. You're not learning. Just to yet another shift of, of wealth and power from the young to the old. And this is what we've seen for well, we've seen for 30 years, but we've certainly seen for the last two years uh, through, through COVID. So this is another example of that. I mean, Sharon, it's, there's so many parts of this story. Um, there's quite interesting writing by a woman called Julia Hobsbawm, for instance, who's written The Nowhere Office, mm-hmm. Reinventing Work and the Workplace of the Future. And she's, one of the observations she's made is um, the city, because of all of this discussion, the city now has a new competitor, the suburb. So, you know, the impacts of this are really considerable. You might say, in answer to what Adam's saying, well, people might have to redevelop um, much more relationships to alleviate that loneliness you've talked about mm-hmm. in their domestic arrangements in their suburbs, which is what people used to do before everybody and, and, came and so work-obsessed. We're seeing it. Look, I think things are going to change and that's that's good. But there are risks to this. And, you know, as Adam says, one of the risks is is invisibility, you know, and actually some research from pre-COVID when it was mostly women that were doing this sort of working from home was that they were less visible to the people that promote them and the people that give opportunities and so on and so forth and, that you know, the consequences that it did affect their careers. So, you know, there's some things that really need to be thought through here and worked out and we're seeing challenges around, okay, if we're even going to have a hybrid model that try to find the best of both worlds, what does that actually look like for mm. people? And, um, you know, is it going to be everyone comes in certain days and which days? So there's complexity here. There's well, things that need to be figured and out. And the collaboration but, becomes a critical thing. You know, what are the... And the colla- mm. Yeah, so, you know, if, if, if people are all hybrid but they all come in different days, you're not getting that collaboration. So these things have got to be you know, thought through, tried, worked out. It is a time of change. There's no simple, immediate um, of way of doing this perfectly. But the world has shifted. People's expectations are different. We know that that next 
that young generation coming forward is different. They want different things. I mean, I, I just want to sort of say one thing. I don't see it, I guess, in a little bit um, the same way that Adam sees it in terms of this being a COVID thing. I think this is a work thing. Um, you know, we've been doing research on work for, for 30 years. And what we know is that people value having some autonomy in their work. And it's really important, you know, from, from a human perspective to have control over your world. And to some extent, this sort of um, people have got the taste of having some more autonomy in their in in then where they work and perhaps when they work, and that's what I think we should be really focusing on here: is how can we give people a bit more autonomy to manage their complex lives? Mm. Um, and 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 actually, these sorts of ideas that oh, they must come in two days or not two days are not very helpful for that. And look, are there different cultural attitudes? Like the way the American Wall Street people are speaking to their employees. I simply do not think would be tolerated in Australia. And obviously the UK is doing it differently. As I say, the French appear to be doing it differently. Do you see that, Sharon? Absolutely. We know from around the world that, you know, different uh, countries have different um, sort of power structures in their organisations. The sort of Swedish models are completely different to the US models, which are completely different to the Japanese models. So that already applies. Um, and, and the other thing I think that's really important here to take into consideration is the type of work that people do. And Adam's already mentioned, you know, that some people, many people actually don't cut don't have this um, opportunity to work from home. I think we could still give them more autonomy over when they work, their shifts and their hours and so on and so forth. Um, but, but what's also important is the type of work. So even if people are working from home, do they do the sort of work where they can do it really solo, they don't have to collaborate much, yes. um, you know, et cetera, or do they do the sort of work where they need to come together and you get that value? And that's a really important part of this conversation. Well, so there's, there's not as one size fits all. Oh, there type certainly model. is not. I think that's what's so interesting about it. I mean, Adam, you think, you warn that this could be a way to fundamentally alter people's status as well. If you become so mobile, well, why can't it go off to Bangladesh or other parts of the world that might have nothing to do with Australia? Yeah, that's, that's a real. When we're talking about there's, when I look at, excuse me, work from home, there's, there's problems for employees and problems for employers. And, this, and what you're talking about, there is a problem for employees and some employers uh, will certainly take advantage of it. I personally, our business has has some offshore workers, we're, we're off, but very much the minority, uh, and they're more in sort of our development or our, our partnerships parts of the business. Uh, but there are certainly, if you look at big banks, if you look at government bodies, if you can hire somebody in Australia that, that that's not in the office working from Parramatta or Brighton or wherever, and they're paying, getting paid two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year, and you get that same employee from from India or Brazil or, or South Africa or the US for one hundred thousand dollars a year, and you're not seeing either of them. It's pretty easy for, for these big organisations to simply shift the cost base across, and, and you've got a lot of call it mid level or senior executives being being remunerated based on on costs. So your incentive, the employees mm. are incentivising themselves to almost dig in their own grave to some some degree. So that's why I think it's a terrible thing for employees to get used to that. Yeah. I mean, look, there's a final question um, that some, uh, this has been written by this uh, Julia Hobsbawm. In the end, the question for leaders who want their people back in the office is why? Is it because regulating some work from home, finance especially, is legally complex? Is it optics? That managers and leaders feel 
feel emotionally invested in high-spec, high-tech, visible offices, or is it a failure to comprehend the scale and sweep of change? So I'm going to get final remarks from both of you. Sharon. I think that's actually the key point here. You know, the the problem with um, Elon Musk is he's insisted people come back to the office with no explanation about why, how the work will be done better. It's just a blatant um, exertion of power. So I think that, um, you know, the, the why is really, really important. Are we doing this because it's the usual way, the old-fashioned way, or are we, are we wanting people back in the office for genuine reasons of collaboration? And okay. employees are not stupid. They can, you know, they can understand if people are, if they're explained and, and, and you know, brought into the discussion. Adam. I think the notion that some people don't want to work for the office and that's completely fine and they'll work for, for organisations who, who embrace that, like Atlassian, for example, and there's some people who absolutely love it. What we want, and I think that generally sorts itself out, out of the next two, three, ten years, what, what we want is a team that's largely in the office with, with flexibility where needed because we think people work better together. But you des- you decide the flexibility, do you? You decide the flexibility as the boss? I suppose that's what people are going well, to be saying. We would, what we do, we'd work with team members to... to to determine if someone needs flexibility and if they do need flexibility, what that flexibility is. Uh, because it's a, it's a discussion. It's not an order from up the top and it's not an order from down from the, from the team member. It's, it's you work together to work out. But knowing that the default position is we want – I'm in the office five days a week. I might not be in 40 hours a week. I might come in at 10 o'clock and leave at 7 or get, mm. get in at 12 and leave whatever. But we want default position to be in the office and then we work flex, flexibly from there. And that's how we were pre-COVID. Uh, we had people who would work – Two or three days a week, other people work five or, or probably five is the, the maximum. But, but yeah, so it's, it needs to be flexible based on, on the individual but with the notion that we, we think people work better together, we want to encourage that kind of person. And if somebody doesn't want to work in that way, there's lots of other businesses that might be more appropriate for them. So there's no hard feelings. We wish them the best and we'll attract a different kind of person. Yeah, but you'll be, yeah, but that's the thing. There's a lot, a lot of attraction at the moment because mm-hmm. workers are scarce. Look, I just know that this is a work in progress. So look, I thank you both very much indeed. Very interesting discussion, Professor Sharon Parker and Adam Schwab. Thank you so much for having us on. Professor Sharon Parker from the uh, Curtin University in WA and Adam Schwab, the co-founder of LuxuryEscapes.com. And thank you for all your texts. Yes, it's a live issue. Stream any ABC radio station live and on the go. Discover new podcasts, music and audiobooks, all free on the ABC Listen app.